2: Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke.
3: There was a stir in the shoemaker's shop. The apprentices were whispering excitedly. Ira Armstrong, who owned the place, asked what they were talking about. The 16-year-old, Andrew, showed him a printed advertisement. Across the top, in a blast of ink, it read, Mesmerism. Wonderful experiments, magnetizer, and phrenologist. Andrew had never heard the term mesmerism before. He had no idea what was going to be on display. But the pamphlets made one thing clear it was going to be a spectacle. The boys could barely sit still. The word passed through Poughkeepsie that the oncoming professor was some sort of wonder worker, a man who would demonstrate mesmeric miracles at the village hall. Everyone in town was talking about it. The boys wanted to see for themselves if the stories were true. Ira grumbled something about magnetic buffoonery, but he must not have been too hard a taskmaster. He gave the boys the afternoon off, and so Andrew bounced off toward Hatch's hotel, with fellow apprentice Edwin in tow. When they arrived, though, the pair were led to a quiet room upstairs. This wasn't the miracles in the village hall the advertisements had promised. When Andrew reached the little room, he found a crowd of boys fidgeting in their seats, craning their necks to look around the room. All of them shared that same eagerness. They were there to witness a mystery. What they got when the professor arrived didn't quite bring the advertisement to life. A man walked to the front of the room and he started to talk. He started to lecture. Sure, his subjects were, as promised, phrenology and animal magnetism, but these are 16-year-old boys we're talking about. They wanted action. His droning went on so long, in fact, Andrew later said it was nearly two hours long, that the boy started to doze. He closed his eyes and his head drooped, but before he could fall asleep, he heard footsteps approach. The lecturing voice took on an eagerness as it came to a stop in front of Andrew. It was time, the man said. For a demonstration. He started to wave his hand dramatically in front of Andrew's head. Then he declared, You can't open your eyes. Andrew must have frowned. He raised his head and looked up skeptically into the man's face. We can only imagine the look of teenage contempt the man got for wasting Andrew's afternoon off. It was nothing short of a letdown. So Andrew went back to work. Any of Ira's smugness about his apprentice's gullibility is lost to history. The stranger had been no mesmerist. His voice did have the power to put people to sleep, but where was the miracle in that? It wasn't long, though, before Andrew and Edwin started to hear more stories. They weren't the only ones to attend the demonstration. The following day and the day after that, rumors started to travel throughout town. Other people who went to the demonstrations, they said, had felt something. Maybe they missed it the first time, or perhaps the visitor needed to warm up, like an athlete before a big game. Either way, word around town was beginning to sound very different from what Andrew and Edwin had expected, and the people were doing more than just whisper. Soon those murmurs would consume a nation. Something supernatural was about to begin. This is Unobscured. I'm Aaron Mankey. Why did the power of mesmerism pass by the shoemaker's apprentice? Maybe it had something to do with the boy's hard life. Growing up, Andrew moved between tenements and tenant houses in towns along the west bank of the Hudson River. His father did odd jobs to keep them alive. He made shoes, wove cloth, whatever handcrafts could earn something for his family, a wife and seven children. He never made much, though. With his children to feed, Andrew's father scratched out a living any way he could. It was a difficult and anxious way to live. Unsurprisingly, much of what he did earn was spent on alcohol. It wasn't just his father's habits that made their life uncertain, though. When they looked at the nation around them, they saw the same thing. Andrew was born in 1826, the year the United States celebrated its Jubilee on July 4th. It had been 50 years since the Declaration of Independence was signed by the Founding Fathers. But the celebration was darkened by clouds of uncertainty. On that exact same day, both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson died in their homes. Their coffins slammed shut on the Founding Era. What would come next? One answer was Andrew Jackson's new Democratic Party. It burst into the world with a bold promise that it would bring about something new— the rule of the common man. Here's Molly McGarry, associate professor of history at the University of California, Riverside.
2: The most significant change affected by Jacksonian democracy was the extension of the franchise, of the vote to white men over the age of 21 who did not own property.
3: The elite power brokers who had shaped the nation saw their numbers shrinking and the oncoming forces of Democratic fervor posed a major threat to their top-down rule. They fought tooth and nail to hold back the political transformation that was swiftly overtaking them. Already contentious and chaotic in 1826, the presidential campaign assured men like the New York Shoemaker that the nation would now be ordered in their favor. In New York, little Andrew was named in honor of Jackson's vision for the future. In the end, though, It would be the boy's own visions that would define his life. But he would have to suffer first. Along the way to his 16th birthday, Andrew lost his mother, two sisters, and a brother. The grief must have been devastating, but there was no time to rest as the blows kept coming, because his father struggled to support even his dwindling family. Things were so rough for them that he rented out Andrew to farmers and tradesmen as a hired hand. Whatever the boy felt, his life came down to work. Eventually, in their wandering search for a way to make a living, Andrew and his father arrived in Poughkeepsie, New York, 70 miles north of New York City, where a local shoemaker, Ira Armstrong, hired Andrew as an apprentice. Ira would later note that Andrew knew how to read and write, but that his knowledge was only rudimentary. Andrew's working life hadn't allowed him a lot of time for school. He was known as a frank, open, and honest boy with a curious attitude, but he wasn't a scholar, a thinker, or a writer. He was known to most folks as friendly and well-disposed, and to his boss, he was a steady and reliable worker. When it all added up, he was just ordinary. But in 1843, all of that would change. In the early 1800s, it wasn't just the political landscape that was cracking apart. Shockwaves in the scientific world were also breaking up old ways of thinking and injecting new ideas into American culture. One of those shockwaves was a man by the name of J. Stanley Grimes, and in 1843, he made his way to Poughkeepsie, and with considerable fanfare too. He was a magnetizer and phrenologist, and his arrival was paved with a burst of announcements and showbills. It was their heading, Mesmerism, that had captured Andrew's attention. Originally developed by the German physician Franz Anton Mesmer, who taught that everything was permeated by an invisible fluid carrying magnetic energy throughout the universe, here's Kathy Gutierrez, historian and scholar-in-residence at the New York Public Library.
2: Why don't stars fall out of the sky, right? Why are planets predictable? Well, they're held in some sort of kinetic tension through magnetic attraction. Certainly Kepler thought this. What Mesmer did was he applied that idea to the human body. So not only the planets, but the, the tides and the sea and the waning of the moon and the flow of this energy through the body could be redirected and redistributed.
3: And that's where J. Stanley Grimes stepped in. For some who kept abreast of advances in science, Grimes was already a household name. A Bostonian and a medical lawyer by training, Grimes was at the forefront of American sciences of the mind by 1832. That was when demonstrators arrived from Germany and led curious Bostonians in a course on the discipline of phrenology. They taught that the shape of the human skull reflected uneven development of the brain where each part performed a specific function. Grimes believed that he could use phrenology to harness the power of Mesmer's animal magnetism. If he followed the right contours of the skull to excite certain organs of the brain, he could pick up where Mesmer left off. In particular, he could drop his subjects into a suggestible trance-like state he called Mesmeric sleep in honor of the German doctor. And it was this freno-magnetism, his personal combination of cutting-edge sciences, that Grimes demonstrated in Poughkeepsie. A few days after Andrew's disappointing encounter with Grimes, a local tailor named William Livingston came by the shoemaker's shop. He and Andrew struck up a conversation. When they got around to Grimes' failed attempt to magnetize Andrew, well, Livingston had something to say about that. He told Andrew that Grimes wasn't so special. In fact, Livingston claimed that he was an even better magnetizer. he performed many magnetic marvels, both in Poughkeepsie and in his travels elsewhere. And Livingston believed that he could succeed with Andrew where the celebrity scientist had failed. So he invited both Andrew and Edwin to his house for his own attempt to magnetize Andrew. Later that night, the shoemaker's apprentice sat across from Livingston. Relaxed and curious to see if the tailor could succeed where the traveling showman had failed, Andrew closed his eyes and felt William's chilly hand pass and repass over his forehead. The effect was sudden. Andrew would later say that 10,000 avenues of sensation were illumined as with the livid flames of electric fire, then a sense of intense darkness, a surge of horrible feelings he couldn't put into words, and then a wave of pain. He tried to protest, but his tongue froze to the roof of his mouth. His cheeks seemed extremely swollen, his lips fused shut, and he could no longer control any part of his body. He was paralyzed, even as he felt himself whirling along a revolving spiral path. He even wondered at that moment if he was dying. And then, as suddenly as the first wave of disorientation had arrived, a cascade of bright, utterly new thoughts gushed into his mind and he fell unconscious. When he woke up, Andrew was sitting in the same position, in the very same chair, right across from Livingston. But now he found that the tailor was bursting with excitement. He saw the same thing on the faces of everyone else in the room, some of whom had not been there when they began. According to Livingston, he had called them in to watch Andrew perform. In his trance, Andrew had read from newspapers held against his forehead, told the time on every watch in the room, and one by one described the diseases and wounds of the people around him. Andrew sat stunned while Livingston described the things he'd done. It shook his world to the core, but it also left him feeling confused. It was one thing to have an experience, but it was something altogether different to explain it. For that, Andrew had nothing to say. But William Livingston did, I know what your power is called, the tailor told him. Clairvoyance. Clairvoyance comes from the Latin for clear vision, and that's exactly what William Livingston identified in Andrew Jackson Davis on that night in 1843 when he fell into a mesmerized trance and began to speak. But Andrew discovered quickly that the spirits speaking through him were looking for a much wider audience. You see, Andrew and William repeated their mesmeric experiments every night, over and over, with the same dramatic result. Andrew would fall into a trance, and while his body was locked in stasis, he would burst out into lectures that amazed visitors with their eloquence and insight. The first small groups grew into crowds, including curious neighbors, who came to test Andrew's powers and hear the young, uneducated shoemaker's apprentice expound on mystical theology and the nature of the universe. Andrew's dramatic performance of trance visions were big news around Poughkeepsie, and the response was equal parts wonder and ridicule, which meant that it didn't take long for the news to travel beyond town. After that first night, Andrew came out of a trance to find that he was famous. As his trances continued, he described in greater and greater detail the way that his vision opened up to the world within the human body, the luminous atmospheres, as he called it. That He saw in human brains and hearts, and then into the branches and leaves of plants, or in the geologic layers of the earth under their feet. When Andrew Jackson Davis was in a trance, he said the fiery light glowing within all life became visible to him. Like a mesmerist's diagnostic tool, he could clearly see the forces that Mesmer had always taught were binding the universe together. Soon enough, in addition to the medical cures that Andrew offered to his visitors, he also went on journeys into the spirit land. There, he began to encounter figures who would speak to him, to teach him, and to pass along wisdom through long lectures about the spiritual structure of the universe. Figures who told Andrew that they were the spirits of the dead. It was an astonishing revelation, if it could be trusted, that is. Like all the mesmerists who had come before, Andrew knew that people would want to witness his trances for themselves. So, at the invitation of a Poughkeepsie minister, Andrew and William began to travel, William put Andrew into trances in Albany, New York, and then Danbury, Connecticut, and then Bridgeport as well. His clairvoyant healing and trance lectures gathered bigger and bigger crowds. For a time, he made a frequent circuit between Connecticut and New York, seeing patients along the way and serving as their medical diagnostician, viewing their wounds like a clairvoyant x-ray and offering healing advice from the spirits of the dead. Among those spirits, Andrew began to report that his guides included the ancient Greek physician Galen, who would help him to heal his patients. After that, he met the spirit of the Swedish Lutheran mystic Emanuel Swedenborg. It was Swedenborg, he said, who guided him on journeys through the astral plane and showed him the structure of the universe. Here's Anne Browdy, senior lecturer on American religious history at Harvard Divinity School.
0: Swedenborg's vision, which... Andrew Jackson Davis was inspired by, described a world of spheres. He understood the world in terms of levels, both levels under the ground and levels spheres above the ground that are through which the soul advances in its journey toward heaven. Orthodox Calvinism and Protestant faith taught that whatever virtue you had accomplished in your life at the moment of death or lack of virtue determined your fate for eternity that you would either be damned or you would be blessed to sit at the right hand of god for eternity and saved thereby from the flames of hell and eternal suffering this is a source of huge anxiety and andrew jackson davis addressed that anxiety with the idea building on Swedenborg, that the soul can continue to progress in grace following death.
3: As his fame grew, Andrew found better partners than his Poughkeepsie Taylor. In November of 1845, he began working with a mesmeric doctor who offered him the chance to become his clairvoyant diagnostician in New York City, and Andrew jumped at the chance. Once there, the pair began working with a Universalist minister and publisher who started writing down the things that Andrew would say during his trances. After a year of collecting the lectures from his journeys into the Spirit Land, Andrew published it all as a book in 1847 The Principles of Nature, Her Divine Revelations, and A Voice to Mankind. Andrew was just 21 at the time, making it quite the accomplishment. He didn't know yet, but his work was about to become the foundation for a coming movement, spurred on, of course, by newspaper reports of the dramatic healings and revelations of his lectures. The book was immediately reviewed throughout the New York press. Some poured praise on the work, while others mocked it. In the book's defense, a Reverend George Bush stepped in and explained that the teachings found inside were not that different from the Transcendentalists in Boston. In fact, just a few years earlier, Ralph Waldo Emerson had called together a meeting of the Transcendental Club precisely to discuss the role of mysticism in modern life. For Emerson and the other Transcendentalists, Immanuel Swedenborg was simply a mystic par excellence. Now Andrew was meeting with that man's spirit and narrating it for all religiously curious Americans. What Davis started with his first book soon came to be called his Harmonial Philosophy. At its core, his message was one of universal religion, that there was a truth transcending all religions, and that if we lived by that truth, it would create a world of peace and order. Spirits who embraced that peace, well, they would progress into the upper heavens. To help spread his harmonial philosophy, Davis and his cohorts established a newspaper that became his mouthpiece. Their goal was, and I quote, "...the establishment of a universal system of truth," the reform and the reorganization of society. To really make the movement take off, though, the theology and the community would need something else. Something tactile and visible and earthier. Something powerful for people to experience. Don't fool yourself into thinking that America wasn't ready for something different. In the early 1850s, the writer Rolf Waldo Emerson reflected back on the state of religion in America, and he wrote that the stern old faiths have all pulverized. America, he said, was a whole population of gentlemen and ladies out in search of religions. Tis a flat anarchy in our ecclesiastical realms. Here's Harvard Divinity School's Anne Browdy once again
0: the period of the 1820s and 30s is known as the second great awakening and it's sometimes referred to as the period of the democratization of american religion when we see religious authority and experience sweeping the country through revivals and we see a declining emphasis on an educated clergy on religious hierarchies On religious education, and an increasing emphasis on religious experience that is accessible to any individual.
3: It was the perfect environment for men like Aidan Ballou. He was born in 1803 into a family that had farmed the same land in Rhode Island for generations. At the age of 12, his whole family experienced a new kind of religion when they attended a universalist revival meeting, singing, praying, and weeping at the incredible stories the traveling preacher told them. It was so powerful, in fact, that for the next three years, Aiden's whole family chased the high. They formed their own church, and Aiden's father served as the deacon. But not long after that, his family experienced their first taste of sorrow. Arnold, one of Aiden's older brothers, became ill and passed away. It was a moment that changed Aidan to the core— it wouldn't be the last time he experienced loss, but that didn't mean it was any less powerful. In fact, the death of his brother haunted him, and then there was the vision. One night, long after his brother had passed away, Aiden awoke in the middle of the night feeling disoriented. He sat up and looked around the room to try and find his bearings, and then finally glanced out the window. And that's when he saw it a human form in a white robe, standing outside. Strangely, Aiden didn't feel afraid, but instead examined the figure. As his eyes adjusted to the figure's brightness, he caught the features of the face and suddenly recognized it. The shining figure outside his room was his dead brother. And then it moved toward him, passing through the solid wall to arrive at the side of his bed. "'I have a command from God,' the figure said with a finger pointed at him. "'Preach to your fellow men. The blood of their souls will be on your hands.'" Aidan's peace suddenly vanished and was replaced with panic and fear. He spent the rest of the night trying to convince himself that he wasn't dreaming, that what he had seen was real. Because if it was real, then he needed to obey. From that day forward, he was plagued by questions about the afterlife and by the issues of suffering and loss. He would eventually go on to start his own church and to travel around the New England area preaching and serving the communities he had encountered. He wasn't a trained minister but that wasn't about to stop him. After all, his mission came straight from the other world, from God himself, and he would be a fool to ignore it. He would taste the bitter wine of loss a few more times over the years. His first wife passed away just a few years after they were married, and then both of his sons as well. He remarried, but once you've experienced loss on the scale Aiden had, it's easy to keep glancing over your shoulder. For a fighter like him, though, that meant looking for answers and building hope. It wasn't long before he and a few of his followers decided to set out on their own and build a community together. In 1841, he led 28 followers from across New York and New England into the woods 30 miles southwest of Boston. There, they founded what was to be the model for a perfect society, a city built on hope. Perhaps that's why he called it Hopedale. Here's Harvard Divinity School's Ann Browdy once again.
0: Hopedale, which was one of the most important for the spread of spiritualism, was considered a community based on what they called practical Christian socialism. And of course, a communitarian ideal and a socialist ideal go hand in hand because of the idea of shared property. Holding property in common is a common element of utopian settlements, and Believe me, socialism is a lot easier if you have a religious motivation. Without a religious motive, not that many people are willing to share property or to live in harmony, to, to place their desires as
3: individuals. They weren't the first to experiment with the idea of a utopian society, not by a long shot. Transcendentalist reformers, including a young Nathaniel Hawthorne, founded a similar commune outside of Boston, Elsewhere, a Scotsman named Robert Owen founded two separate communities, including one in Indiana called New Harmony, but even he took inspiration from an earlier example, the Shakers. The Shakers ticked all the boxes for a utopian society from the early 1800s. They held their own property in common, they worked the land, they plied their trades in cooperation, and they practiced true equality by giving leadership roles to both men and women. But ever since they arrived in new york in the 1770s the shakers had also begun to experience something else ecstatic visitations in 1837 at their communal home in new york three girls whose ages ranged from 10 to 14 fell under some invisible spiritual power anne goff the oldest of them stood before her community and told them that she had seen a female spirit dressed in white And while that might sound like something pulled right out of the Salem Witch Trials of 1692, the 150 years that separated them made a world of difference. Rather than start a witch hunt, their story was received with open arms. Later that same day, as the community danced in enthusiastic worship, Anne's ghostly friend reappeared and moved among them, kissing them and singing songs to them. The next time she was seen, she brought others with her, always appearing to Anne, Soon enough, the spirits of the dead were appearing at their own funerals to comfort their mourning families. Even Mother Anne Lee, who founded the Shaker Order before dying in 1784, appeared with heavenly messages for her followers. Remarkably, spirits from outside the Shaker community began to arrive as well. George Washington, Lafayette, Napoleon, the biblical Queen Esther, and the spirits of Native Americans all appeared with messages and lessons for them all. And here's the thing, Shaker communities around New York started to believe that some Shakers were born to communicate with these ghostly visitors. They called them instruments of the spirit world, and whatever they received, they would share with others, all for the building up of their community. Whatever their power might have been, these instruments offered hope, and whether they were offering divine wisdom, comforting words, or answers to difficult questions, one thing was absolutely clear. For those with eyes to see, the dead had burst from the grave. History hasn't been kind to spiritualism. A recent two-volume history of the United States treated spiritualism with a single dismissive sentence, as if it was an insignificant movement making self-evidently foolish claims. And honestly, there are a lot of people today who agree with that sentiment. But just wait, because that view is far from reality, and far from the way the world looked to a lot of people in the 1840s. In a time when the spiritual sciences of mesmerism, animal magnetism, and phrenology were popular and became major new preoccupations, well, the right way to see the world became less and less obvious. Before spiritualism became the parlor room seance and the music hall spectacle that's so often mocked today, it was born in the minds of deeply religious teachers, passionate social reformers, and curious scientists who wanted to change the world. Here's Dr. John Busher, co-director of the International Association for the Preservation of Spiritualist and Occult Periodicals.
0: That profound influence that they exerted on the national life was deliberately written out of histories of reform movements like the women's movement the labor movement the politics the history of the politics of the period the intellectual history the history of of the novel and poetry and on and on that story has hardly been told
3: In this season of Unobscured, we'll trace the path of the spiritualists who followed the voice of Andrew Jackson Davis. Over the course of the 19th century, spiritualism became a kaleidoscope of novel beliefs, courageous people and world-shaking events. Here is historian Molly McGarry.
2: There were always many spiritualisms, both in the 19th century and beyond. So some people came to the seance tables seeking answers, wanting deeply to commune with lost loved ones. Others were curious investigators looking to see for themselves what this new technology could materialize. But what I found and what I've been most struck by is that many spiritualists took seriously the possibility of channeling the voices of the dead as a means of both connecting with the past and imagining both worldly and otherworldly futures.
3: The truth is, spiritualists traveled all around the world, started a raft of publications, and took up, proclaimed, and then rejected a vast web of ideas about the afterlife, communication with the spirits of the dead, and the authority those spirits had over the living. Their story touches everything from technology to medicine, to the genocide of Native Americans, and the murder of a president. And along the way, its values were echoed by social causes like abolition, women's suffrage, and labor rights, helping it grow from a local fad to a global phenomenon. And yes, it's a story about religion, but it's so much more. It's a story of idealism and individualism, of poachers and preachers, and of freedom fighters and celebrities. And while the Shaker Girls provided an early model for those emerging spiritualists, it was Andrew Jackson Davis, the seer of Poughkeepsie, who would do something bigger. He would be their first bona fide star. Amy was running from her pain. In the spring of 1825, Amy's fiance suddenly became ill and passed away. And then, a short while later, she received a letter from her brother in law that her sister was also sick. Amy rushed to her sister's side, and together with her brother-in-law Isaac, they cared for the dying woman as best they could, but eventually the illness won, and both of them were left to deal with their loss and grief. The road to healing also turned out to be a road to second chances, and two years later, the pair were married. Amy and Isaac Post were Quakers, a religious group that had been in America since the middle of the 1600s. Since the beginning, they often found themselves at odds with their Protestant neighbors because of their unique beliefs. In fact, during the Salem Witch Trials of 1692, being part of the Quaker movement was a very good way to get yourself accused of witchcraft. But they were also one of the first utopian experiments. Here's Anne Browdy again from Harvard Divinity School. To give up the notion that
0: individual property equals happiness, you have to be very deeply committed. And piety, religious fervor go a long way towards making that possible. Of course, the Quakers are the most successful communitarian religious experiment in American history. In
3: 1827, the Quaker movement split into two pieces. One of their charismatic leaders, who also happened to be Amy's cousin, thought their community had become too worldly, not least because there were so many Quakers comfortable with the institution of slavery, some even holding slaves of their own. Along with Isaac, Amy followed the dissenters, seeking a religion that was more pure. Here's Molly McGarry once again. She came from a family of religious radicals who
2: had thought that the Quaker establishment had grown too orthodox, too comfortable with the material institutions of the world, including slavery.
3: The couple moved to Rochester in 1836, where Isaac became a successful pharmacist. Not long after, Amy started holding abolition meetings in their home, and it wasn't just radical Quakers who were invited. You see, New York State had abolished slavery a decade earlier. And then in 1834, a group of black women founded Rochester's first female abolition society, following the example set by black women in Salem, Massachusetts, who formed the first women's anti-slavery society in the United States in 1832. That very same year, a school for black children opened in Rochester, two blocks away from a church on 34 Sophia Street. When Isaac and Amy Post moved into town in 1836, they took the home next door. By the mid-1840s, word spread that Isaac and Amy had started participating in worldly groups filled with people who weren't Quakers. This was too much, even for many of the Quaker separatists. Molly McGarry once again.
2: Isaac and Amy Post were actually thrown out of their Genesee Quakers group for, as the story goes,
3: having hosted a wedding of two African-American friends of theirs. The black neighborhoods and black churches in Rochester were growing. As news spread, people began to arrive in town looking for safe harbor. First and foremost, they were people who had escaped from slavery, and black churches were the first places in the city to provide shelter for them, sometimes finding ways to hide survivors in plain sight. At one point, local abolitionists counted that they were helping 150 people each year. Soon enough, Amy and Isaac joined in, helping their neighbors hide fugitives— and also giving them food, blankets, clothing, and money for the journey farther north, where freedom awaited them. In July of 1843, Isaac Post and a few others put together a three-day convention of their friends, and the Posts hosted speakers in their home. In fact, one of them was a young man who had escaped from slavery in Maryland. His name? Frederick Douglass. But that wasn't all. Amy and Isaac also met a young white woman named Leah Fish, She was a single mother who was struggling to make a living as a piano teacher in Rochester and they felt moved to help her, so they took her into their home. A short while later, Leah's parents, John and Margaret, also arrived in town, along with two of Leah's younger sisters. They had recently lost everything in a failed farming experiment farther north and needed a place to rest, recover, and plan their next move. Amy was only too happy to help. It turned out to be a fateful meeting. What Leah and her sisters brought into Amy's life would shift her horizons, change her place in the world, and etch Rochester's name into the nation's religious history. And they would give Andrew Jackson Davis's harmonial philosophy the thing it was missing. 1848 was about to dawn, and the age of spiritualism was about to begin. That's it for this week's episode of Unobscured. Stick around after this short sponsor break for a preview of what's in store for next week
1: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists. Like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids, Bob, Kids, Megan Trainor, Bistle Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Shawn Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two-Door Cinema Club.
1: Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Next time on Unobscured.
3: More and more seekers were making their way into Rochester, all while other religious experiments were falling flat and communities along the canal were folding, looking for guidance, for connection. And for the next step to take in their lives, people new to the city were open to something that could be seen and heard, something that could be witnessed. After a year of closed sittings, the spirits spoke up. They were ready for a wider audience. In a private seance just for the posts, the spirits spoke through Leah, telling Isaac to rent Rochester's Corinthian Hall for a whole three nights. For the first time ever, they were going to throw the doors open wide, To a paying crowd. It was time for the spirits to take the stage. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane in partnership with iHeartRadio. Research and writing for this season is all the work of my right-hand man, Carl Nellis, and the brilliant Chad Lawson composed the brand new soundtrack. Learn more about our contributing historians, source material, and links to our other shows over at historyunobscured.com. And until next time, thanks for listening.
2: Obscured is a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.